Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of My Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the My Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MyBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a minute to talk supplements. As you guys probably know, these days there are so many supplements on the market offering different benefits, but fish oil is one of the ones you'll hear about the most, and for good reason. Pretty much everyone, regardless of age or activity level, can benefit from taking a fish oil supplement daily. That's because 75% of Americans don't get enough omega-3s, the main component of fish oil, in their diets. Omax 3 is one of the cleanest fish oil brands on the market, and now they're offering MBG listeners a free box at tryomax.com slash mindbodygreen. Omega-3s can do everything from improve mental performance and boost mood to protect against coronary heart disease and promote better athletic performance. But you want to make sure you're getting it in its purest form. You need to be really selective when it comes to choosing a fish oil supplement because rancid oils full of fillers can actually do more harm than good. Omax 3 is obsessive about sourcing and production, and their product is 93.9% pure omega-3s. To put that number into perspective, they encourage consumers to try what they call the freezer test challenge. Basically, if you freeze any other omega-3 supplement, it will get cloudy because of all the filler. But an Omax 3 soft gel remains clear. It's that pure. We've partnered with Omax to give you guys an insane deal. You'll get a box for free when you head over to tryomax.com slash mindbuddygreen. That's tryomax.com slash mindbuddygreen. Omax 3 comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so you have plenty of time to try it and really feel the Omax difference for yourself. My wife Colleen and I prioritize eating healthy, but between running our own business and spending time with our daughter Ellie, we don't always have time to go grocery shopping and cook all the delicious plant-based meals we want to eat, which is why I'm so glad that Hungry Root is sponsoring today's podcast episode. Founded in 2015, Hungry Root delivers healthy convenience to your door, making it easy to eat healthy when you're super busy. Meals only take 10 minutes to prepare, and each one includes fresh-cut vegetables, mouth-watering sauces, and there's so much variety. They have 75 different dishes, so we definitely never get bored. Even better, all of their meals are low in sodium and preservatives and sugar-free. The only issue? We're guilty of hitting their almond chickpea cookie dough just a little too hard. Hey, what do you expect? It's delicious. Sound good to you? Use code MBG to get $25 off your first two deliveries for a total savings of $50. Hey everyone, I hope you don't mind the brief interruption, but I wanted to take a minute to share something I'm really excited about right now. In today's world, many people simply view food as sustenance, entertainment, or even worse, as the enemy. But that's not how it should be, and definitely not how it has to be. What people often forget is that food fuels us, nourishes us, and is one of the most powerful, and not to mention affordable, pathways to our greatest well-being. That is why we here at MindBuddyGreen, along with some of the world's top functional health experts, have created the first-ever Functional Nutrition Program, a comprehensive training built to help you discover how you can unlock the healing powers of food. 
By enrolling in this one-of-a-kind opportunity, you'll learn how you can heal your gut, improve your digestion, and fight inflammation, how you can use food to enhance the health of your brain and fight autoimmune disease, how to heal your thyroid, slow the aging process, and pick the perfect supplement to complement your functional nutrition habits, plus lifestyle changes you can start making today to prevent disease and promote longevity. Essentially, you'll learn how to heal the body through the power of food so that you can feel rejuvenated and more alive than you ever thought possible. On top of all of this, as a student in the program, you'll receive total access to over 160 video lessons, live office hours with all instructors at various points throughout the program, exclusive self-paced content to deepen your functional nutrition knowledge, including an array of thorough study guides, writing assignments and quizzes, discussion boards to interact with other students, and the Mind Body Green Functional Nutrition Guide Certification, the MBG FNG, upon completion of the program, and so much more. Now, just because we're so excited about this program and so excited for you to start mastering the concept of functional food, we're offering you an exclusive deal. If you sign up today, you can get this comprehensive, first-of-its-kind program for $600 off the original price, so don't wait. To sign up for this exclusive deal today, go to mindbodygreen.com slash unlock. That's mindbodygreen.com slash unlock. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this exciting news, and we hope that you'll join us by making the Mind Body Green Functional Nutrition Program part of your journey toward optimal well-being. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions... Any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. John Sebastiani is the founder and managing partner of Sonoma Brands, one of the leading venture capital investors in natural consumer products today. He's also the founder of Crave Pure Foods, which he sold to the Hershey Company in 2015. John's an avid marathoner and is known as one of the leading investors and minds in the natural product space today, always one step ahead of where the market is going and the trends we need to watch. John, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So the journey to wellness with, for you started with wine. It did. <laughs> started in the heart of Sonoma Valley. So talk to us about this. A great, great story dating back to your grandfather. So I am a member of the fourth generation of the Sebastiani wine family. And uh, it's just this great entrepreneurial journey that, that started in Tuscany and my great-grandfather, Samueli, learned to make wine for the monks in a small town named Luca and eventually earned enough money through the community where the community sent him to America where he wanted to go. And he dipped into New York City for working in a soup kitchen for about a year and ultimately made his way to San Francisco where his first job was helping find rocks to build the first cobblestone streets of San Francisco. And, you know, about 35 miles north of San Francisco is Sonoma Valley, and they had this amazing rock quarry there. And so eventually he made his way with his horse and his wagon and started transporting the cobblestones down to San Francisco in the first streets. And when you look at 
the landscape and the weather patterns and the soil, so much of Sonoma reminded him of Tuscany that he returned to growing grapes, sort of one vine, one small vineyard at a time, and, and ultimately led to the founding of Sebastiana Vineyards in 1894. And wow, he, long time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's an amazing journey. I came in to the world uh, in 1970. I was born, and uh, my father uh, was running Sebastiana Vineyards at the time, and. And uh, I was put to work. I mean, I am a blue, come from a blue collar, hardworking, you know, Italian family where life and work intersect together. And the lines are so blurred between work and family and boss and father. And, <laughs> and so I was working in the vineyards, suckering grapevines, leaving, um, which is taking the canopy of a grapevine back. So there's more sun exposure to the grapevine or the grape cluster. And did that at eight years old, kind of year by year, elevated to the next level. And you know, by the time I was 13 years old, I was in the lab pulling samples from the redwood cask barrels, testing for sugar levels or alcohol levels or pH levels. And I always knew when I was a teenager that I appreciated the business side. I really enjoyed the marketing and the branding part of wine. By the time I was, you know, a teenager, it was now the 80s, and wine had evolved a lot. And it wasn't just Burgundy or Chablis, which was a blend of a number of different grape varieties from perhaps a number of different years that were just all jammed into one bottle. And so the the category had premiumized to specific varietals, to specific vineyards, and the consumer began to expect a more elevated experience from California wines alongside French wines. I mean, up to that point, French wines were the elite wines. And so as I entered high school and college, I I kind of knew at that point that I I was going to focus on the business side of of the winery family rather than going into fermentation science. And so I, I finished college in 1992. Um, I, the family's a big family, and if anybody's ever seen Falcon Crest, uh, there's lots of drama involved oh, yeah, in totally. big family I remember Falcon Crest. Yeah, I'm, 40, I'm a little did. younger than you, so, okay. yeah, but I'm 43, so I totally okay. remember Falcon Crest. So, there, you know, you've got... You know, it just happens. I mean, this is a, an amazing business. I mean, the wine business is as glamour, uh, as high of a glamour business I think I've still been a part of. And obviously, you're always around food and entertainment and wine. But when you include so many members of a family, it's just it's sometimes it's hard. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it depends on how I look <laughs> at it at this point in my life. But in 2005, uh, the family sold, and we just. We sold the different branches of our wine business, and I was 35 at the time, and it was a scary as shit time. I mean, I had invested all of my 20s and 30s. It was all I knew. It's your whole identity. It's everything. It was my identity. Yeah. Uh, I lived to some degree in the shadow of the larger family name. I was just a small piece of it. There was so much expectations put on me. Um, that's all anybody wanted to talk about when I went to, when I went to a cocktail party or went and met somebody new. Tell me more about your grandfather. <laughs> how was it here? And, um, but I, in my mind, knew 
that I, I just actually I got to a spot where I, I couldn't I could no longer explain why our Chardonnay was different than the 4,000 other Chardonnays. <laughs> there just actually started to be a bullshit element to the business, in my opinion. Um, and there's a lot there, but I, I decided that I was going to leave wine. I just felt like the industry at large had grown to become a lifestyle business. Uh, when you live there, it's the entire community in one way or another is built around the wine business or you're a service provider sure. to the wine business. So I, I didn't know quite what I was going to do. Um, I was 35. I considered myself to be an entrepreneur uh, as a part of the family business to to earn any respect from the outside world. You had to work twice as hard. And people thought I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth and just didn't understand just how hard I worked to get to where I was. And, you know, I at the same time, I was I was kind of going into a little bit more of a mature you know stage of my adulthood and was more focused on my fitness and realized I you know was aging and I had to take care of myself and sleep better and and be more athletic and so I was training for the New York City Marathon and and found myself eating beef jerky I mean this crazy product that actually is good for you when you peel back the layers of what how the product's made if it's made properly with a good cut of beef the protein, the experience that I felt, the tenderness of the texture of this particular butcher in Sonoma, where I bought it all from, named I've, Angelo's. I've stopped by that place. Yeah, you have. The drive, there's like a famous drive, like you drive up on the drive yeah, up. Yeah, big cow. Yeah, yeah. It's like a big, yeah. live-sized cow on the highway there. And he's still alive, by the way. He's does like does he know that he was the inspiration? He does. I mean, this is a pretty <laughs> – this story has been put in print before. Um you know, I don't think I've ever given him a big bear hug yet because I owe so much to him. Uh, I don't know if he really realizes it or not. Maybe he listens to the podcast. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and so here I am, New York City Marathon, 2009. It's November. I'm eating jerky. I'm, I'm completely perplexed with what's next in my life. And I'm like, you know, there's something here. I just know it. And uh, I, I you know, came out of Columbia business school. And so I, I understood how to research a category and I started researching. And what, what hit me like a ton of bricks was the fact that here's this $4 billion category. And there's three main players in the entirety of the category that take up 90% market share. And these three main companies are doing the same thing. It's Slim Jim, it's Jack Links, it's Oberto. And they're all marketing themselves to men and right. toughness and WWF and, you know, Sasquatch and, and gas stations, gas stations yeah. and so forth. So I'm like, wow, is it, is the consumer even receptive if I could change the conversation around a little bit and bring some culinary forward thinking to it, bring some health awareness to it, if made properly, because I removed sodium nitrates, I removed corn syrup. It was from a whole cut. It was from the chuck tender part of the cow. And really highlighted protein. And this is before protein, what, what it is today. You know, in 2010, out of that New York City Marathon, I started to dabble in, in taking this business seriously. Um, I approached it like a tech company. I developed a minimum viable product. I put it on a store shelf. I watched Velocity. I asked consumers what they were leaving to eat this, why they came back and repurchased it, their frequency of usage. Uh, what their relationship to it. Was it a health snack? Did they feel better about themselves? Would they eat it as a meal? Did they have the same experience uh, as I did 
um, replacing that as a part of their fitness-focused diet? And the, the answer was pretty resounding as a, in the affirmative. We, we brought packaging to it. It was as clear as day to me that up to this point, the category had completely ignored women. I mean, women right. just didn't. They were embarrassed to even be seen with a bag of jerky uh, on their desk or in their hand. And so we brought packaging. I mean, packaging is such an obvious layup in terms of today's marketing. But at the time, uh, no jerky company had, you know, sexy packaging. So we brought pastel colors. We brought, you know, rosemary and lemon garlic flavors and basil citrus and just a whole elevated experience. And... You know, as most great businesses, uh, they're all, they're only as good as the people that you have around. And, you know, I, I really try to be as humble as I can be that, you know, I want to hire people that are way smarter than me. And, um, I felt like in the early days of building Crave, there were some amazing smart people that brought to the company's experience that was far outside of my own. And so together, when we aggregated us uh, as a team, we could execute pretty quickly. And so this company just exploded. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, I look back and I, I totally admit I was at the right place. It was at the right, it was the right time. I was prepared and I was funded. Right. And so I could take advantage of that opportunity that knocked. But uh, timing was perfect. And this company just was triple digit year over year over year over year. And my own day... Uh, the why in the road came when, um, well, I had first received an offer from a strategic that, that was my first, like, holy shit moment. Like, oh my God, my little baby that I'm a wine guy. <laughs> I, you know, for two years, I, I laid awake at night wondering if I was, like, I didn't even tell my wife for six months that I was working on this project because I was embarrassed. <laughs> She's like, what's all this jerky doing? What I mean, are you doing? <laughs> like, wine is this, this, there's almost an arrogance, you know, in the wine business, but jerky's as lowbrow as you sure. could get at that point. But anyway, when when the first offer came, it was it was just a shock to me that the that just the the number. And so, uh, fortunately, I had some great advisors around me, and, and we turned that down. So, when when Hershey came, um, which came in 2000, late 2014, um, they approached me and and you know, expressed interest in, in the company in terms of the direction of Hershey that needs to embrace healthy snacking. They need to, to change the conversation about their own, their own organization. And they felt like Crave was the perfect brand to do that. And for me, I had an emotional connection to the president, Michelle Buck, who I just felt had the right vision and to be a small part of the Hershey story that shifts their focus to a healthy snacking portfolio sure. or platform just was amazing. I thought it would galvanize sort of the Crave story, and we sold in 2015. And so you sell the company, and you could have just sat back and said, all right, I'm done. Now I'm going to chill out for, for the rest of my life, but you don't do that. I, You know, I, I, I'm a very mindful person, so I, you know, oftentimes that – it's hard to sleep because you're just constantly analyzing or overthinking every decision. And so I, I wondered to myself during the process as I digested what was actually happening and that wire that comes in and do you have 
your edge? Have you lost your edge? Do you, have you lost your right. hunger? Do you care anymore? But what I realized, um, and this is more about me as a human, is is given the dynamics of my family background and how hard it was for me to to try to survive my own identity outside of the shadow of the family. I just had this conviction that surprised me after we sold that I wanted it to to broaden my horizon. I felt like the team that we built at Crave was was part family to me and that it was something very special. We we certainly learned a lot uh, about how to go to market. We developed an incredible amount of relationships uh, within this amazing ecosystem from retailer buyers to the best brokers to the rest best distributors and, and suppliers and so forth. And we said, well, I'm, I'm bullish enough on our team and I have enough energy and drive here that I, I actually I, I need to prove it that this wasn't luck, right. that there was some skill. So we decided to, to start Sonoma Brands. And the basic thesis of Sonoma Brands is there's a lot of investors out there, so we didn't want to just be another investor. Right. But we thought, what if we – what if we brought an internal incubation team alongside an investment team so that we were doing both? We were both creating brands in nascent categories or in areas of, of opportunity that we found uh, approachable, and we invested. And it, when you look at the architecture of that firm, it makes us a unique investor because we, we bring team and it's not just experience or advice around a board table. It's tactical team. I have people in Boston and New York and Florida and Dallas and San Diego and Seattle. And so it, it was a compelling opportunity because, again, we bring an incubated item to life in a researched category. We create a minimum viable product. We put it immediately out into the marketplace and – not too many stores. It's very expensive to launch a brand, but enough stores to give us some statistics back on repeat purchasing behavior. Did we did we peg the right flavor, the right bag size, the right place in the store to merchandise it before we totally scale it? And that team brings these to life very quickly. But that team also can provide value to an investment. So – if we were to invest into Dang Foods, which was our first investment, that team can step in day one, turnkey, and accelerate their growth all over the country. We, we can study their priority, whether it's a new product launch or a promotional schedule or what have you. And so Cinema Brands came to life in 2016, and – uh, we were incredibly fortunate to partner with VMG, um, which is a terrific private equity, perhaps the best private equity firm sure. uh, in the food and beverage business in San Francisco, and be- just felt like we were true collaborating partners, and they funded sort of Sonoma Brands Fund One. And out of that Fund One, we, we incubated two brands, uh, Smash Mallow is – one, which is addressing the stale nature of the marshmallow category. My wife, Colleen, loves Smashmallow. <laughs> loves Smashmallow. Which we- Smash-tastic. It's a yes. Great, yes. And we can go on <laughs> about Smashmallow in a minute. Well, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. And so that was the first brand. So that was the first. And, and then Zupanoma yep. uh, is our second, which highlights the vegetable 
uh, in a number of ways. And our first step is in the portable, sippable superfood soup. So think uh, Italian gazpacho, convenient on the go, portable, brought to the U.S. In a, in a manner that highlights the vegetable with less sugar, more fiber. And then we made a Series A investment in Dang Foods. So what is so exciting to you about CPG, particularly in the natural space right now? Well, I think we're in the middle of this shift, um, driven by so many converging forces. You know, on the one hand, uh, the younger generation, as well as my generation, um, is just expecting more out of their food. Mm -hmm. And so I've witnessed this in the wine space and draw so many parallels alongside it where the specialization or the premiumization of every element of the industry changes. Uh, in the wine business, we got down to the specific vineyard that was picked on a specific day as the metric that was put on the label. So every part of the food business, uh, every part of the grocery store is under attack by entrepreneurs that are providing better more experiential, more transparent, more mission-driven, uh, sustainable products that in every way uh, can outperform big food. And so with the availability of capital now, um, the entrepreneur and the small business has a competitive advantage. Right. And retailers uh, are recognizing this, their own existence uh requires them to lean into these younger earlier stage businesses. So when you're looking when you when you throw your investment hat on and you're looking at a brand, what do you look at? What do you look for in an investment without going through numbers and everything like what what are the must-have qualities that an emerging natural brand has to have to succeed? I mean for me it's it it definitely starts with with people. I mean this is a the relationship business and so much of my success at Crave was was a result of great people around me. So, you know, I think independent of even the product and the category and, and the IP and all of the various issues that also go into uh, determining if, if something's a good investment are the founders and the leadership mm -hmm. team. And so I really look to, to get to know uh, the founders and do the founders um, have the grit? So much of us have passion, and I think passion is a very important ingredient in building a business, but grit is also an over overlooked item oftentimes because no matter what, there's going to be competition. There are going to be problems. Sure. There are going to be the issues. The dark night of the soul. Yes. <laughs> so grit's important, and I think leaders that know how to listen um, is an important ingredient. Uh, this business is so publicized now with so much capital available that I think founders can sometimes get a little overly confident and stop listening. They think they have the answer to everything. So I look I look for team first and then, of course, followed by product and, and sector. So you mentioned nascent categories before. Explain what that means to you and why that's important. Well... I think there's a couple things. One is is education is expensive. And so when I when I describe a nascent category, directionally that means that it's a product that a consumer from 8 to 80 is aware of. Sure. And so I kind of take the most expensive step out of the process by 
teaching somebody what it actually is. Um, the second part is if it's so nascent, can I change the conversation around vis-a-vis an ingredient shift, which is the easier thing to do? The harder thing to do is a usage occasion shift. And so with Smash Mallow, completely nascent category. It's center of store death aisle. It's generally on the bottom shelf, which collects the most dust. And I'd say 90% of the people that you ask if they know a marshmallow would say, yeah, I I know what a marshmallow is. I use it for s'mores and I use it for hot cocoa and I use it to make Rice Krispie treats. And that's about it. Occasionally, you'll get somebody that throws in a Thanksgiving yam dish that they use marshmallows (laughs) for. And so... We thought, and this kind of goes back to a personal problem for me. It wasn't just that I focused, walked the aisles of a grocery store and found marshmallows and said, ha, that looks like an interesting idea I can disrupt. It was actually a personal relationship to it. And I, I'm an athletic guy. I'm, I'm an amateur runner and I run marathons and, and half Ironmans and, bike races and so forth. And so I'm, I'm pretty focused on what I eat and certainly focused on, on my fitness. And it's one of my most important meetings of the day is getting my run or my bike ride in. But I have a vicious sweet tooth. And it's just, <laughs> it's unfortunate. I mean, and I have a 10-year-old daughter. So one way or the other, there's always junk food around my sure. house. And so my go-to um, when I would have sort of a, a sugar crave would be a marshmallow because it's just less sugar, zero fat, less calories than any other ordinary sweet treat. And there's so many options that are better for you today. But but growing up over the last 10 years, the marshmallow was my go-to less guilty sweet treat. So I had this personal relationship with it in this nascent category. And the basic premise was could I change the conversation around where the marshmallow becomes snackable because it's a sweet treat by adding flavor and by adding inclusions. And, you know, it's only 18 months old, so it's a bit early, but, but Smash Mallow right now is, is growing, you know, three, four times faster than Crave did. The adoption rate is ridiculous. The repeat purchasing behavior is ridiculous. The um, product's great. Like products. Co- we love it like the, the cookie dough for us. We, we can't yeah. just eat one. <laughs> no, it's pretty good. That one's scary for me because it's actually, I open it and I finish the whole bag. Yeah, I, we have that problem yeah. too. So like what other categories are you, you know, as we talk about trends and categories, what's exciting to you? Well, I think I, I look at beverage in a, in a way that obviously we drink liquids all day long. Um, I might have five to seven different um, sparkling waters or teas a day, and and I used to be an, a Diet a Coke addict. Right. Uh, I drink five Diet Cokes a day. On top not of, anymore, though. Not anymore. Good. On top of my five. Good. Otherwise, we'd have day. to have a talk. But yeah. good. <laughs> no, I, I'm completely. Uh, I do not drink soda at all. And haven't for a while, but um, so I'm. I really like what's happening with Spindrift, uh, with some of these brands that are that are really changing the uh, conversation about beverage. Um, I'm an investor in Guayaquil, which um, yep. is just a. Is that how you pronounce it? Guayaquil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I always. I always. I always get that one wrong. It's the. It's in a. It's I've called it so many different versions of that name. Most people, when they say <laughs> yellow, yellow can. Yerba Mate. Oh, I know that one. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Um, but they're a very mature business. They've been around uh, for 15 years, started sure. by five guys. They call themselves the Five Samias, and they are very focused on sustainability. They're very focused on, on their mission. Uh, they're building their own DSD network around the country with a carbon-free electric vehicle fleet. Wow. Um, they are. They have satellite imagery that that is able to capture how they've been able to reforest 100,000 acres in South America with the way that they grow their mate, and so that that speaks to me uh, on a mission level, and certainly their products speak to me because they're healthy healthier options than what I was previously consuming. So, beverages is certainly sure. an obvious one. What other categories that? Well, the, are out there that you're like, oh, well, maybe that, that that aren't necessarily on trend or nascent, but you what you're like looking at and you're saying, hmm, that's interesting. Well, I think you know uh, you'd be living in a cave if if you haven't seen and been amazed at the explosion of bone broth and oh, collagen, yeah. and and so our partners at VMG have have done a phenomenal deal with Ancient Nutrition, and, yep. and so just recently I am a subscriber and I'm a part of their. Uh, uh, hype club, as they call it, um, an ancient ancient pioneer, and I'm consuming collagen every day, and I have been for four months, and and I and I am a bit of a naysayer uh, in terms of just sort of coming out of the wine business where there's so much BS flying around and marketing that that sort of doesn't completely tell the truthful story with what's in a bottle. To me, collagen, I can already feel a difference. Right. Um, it's something that I do think is sustainable. So what do you think? How do you distinguish between a trend versus a fad for you personally? Well, just I, time? I look at, at function uh, in a way where I have to cut through the BS and just r- really be honest with myself. Is mm-hmm. it functionally working? And so there's, I think, function and enjoyment sometimes are two different things. And where they parallel or when the Venn diagram, where they intersect, if function is both enjoyable, then I think that's a trend. A fad can be uh, something that is supposedly function-oriented, um, but but either doesn't deliver the nutrient level that it promises or is not enjoyable in any way, Um and so it's very difficult, uh, obviously, uh, for, for any of us in this business to determine when something new comes out because the speed with which these trends turned or fads turn into trends is is at mock level now. So is there anything, any, obviously you don't have to name a brand, nor do I want you to name a brand, but like, is there anything out there that you think is a fad, you don't think it has legs, that's very hot right now? I think, you know, just on the heels of Expo West a, a couple of weeks ago, there there are a number of of products that that um, you know the vegan movement is is very clear, and I think it's very meaningful. And I think there are brands out there that are pigeonholing themselves into a certain product. And so, if if you're a vegan dish that's that's replicating a meat experience with a specific fruit. And they've designed a, a, an assortment of products based on one ingredient. Um, and I won't name names, sure. but, but I think there are a number of brands that are jumping on the dairy-free vegan uh, diet that, that I think is a very real trend. But within it, there are fads that I think will, will fail. Well, it goes to this idea. So something someone explained this to me once that they, they think of brands and fads and trends. And, and they ask the question, like, is it a, is it a platform? 
and the idea being is it is it just one ingredient or 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 is it exclusionary but you can only do like one thing with it versus yeah. like can this extend to different categories like let's say if it's dairy free like I'll use Calafia as an example. I think it's a platform like, um, you know, milks, beverage, yogurt, like it can. So is that, is it, you look at it that way as well? Like can this, yeah. I mean, I think at some point when we, when we peel back our attention from just the specificity of the, the fad category or movement, building great brands that, that represent health, that represent, um, functionality uh, that give it permissibility to play in sandboxes outside of their core early category are the best brands. So Califia, right. I've, I mean, they're like one of my favorite brands. Yeah, I love Greg's been on this podcast. He's amazing. Phenomenal. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I've met him. I've been on a panel with him, but, but uh, a visionary, clearly the brand speaks for itself. It's already a tremendous success, but, but that brand, uh, it, you know, you'd love to be on their innovation team because oh, yeah. where it could go anywhere. Starts with Craig's head, I think. Yeah. But, uh, but well, it's this idea. I think there's always like a hot ingredient, you know, and, and sometimes that ingredient has legs, sometimes it doesn't. And then you see like people build businesses around one ingredient. Sometimes that could work out. Sometimes. Yeah. May not. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, again, uh, going back to the wine space, fads are, are an important part of understanding success in the wine space. Um, and so just, by training, you kind of second guess them. I think Whole30, uh, and there are other, you know, keto uh, initiatives out there that that are similar. Um, originally, I was like, as as an investor and as an entrepreneur, I, I wanted to understand it a little bit better. And, and we were fortunate enough to meet Melissa, and, and so I I did the Whole30. I've done it three times, three separate times, and I, it absolutely works. I mean, I felt better. My skin looked better. My joints felt better. I slept better. And so there's absolutely something there uh, that I am personally in my own life subscribing to. And so I think businesses that are able to to live by those rules and those guardrails sure. uh, are going to thrive. She's an amazing uh, human being who's also been on this podcast, dear friend. I love whole, I think whole 30 is a cultural phenomenon. Like it was so clear in January just following social media. And I was like, holy cow, like the biggest threat to weight watchers, whether they know it or not, is this. And they, they've a, got other problems, but it's from wow. a business standpoint. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, look, we have a, a brand Zupanoma that we're partners with Aisha Curry, Steph Curry's sure. wife. Uh, who is a foodie and a chef and a very visible person and we're Whole30 compliant, which is on our label. And the impact when Melissa or the Whole30 uh, team talks about Zupanoma as a product while you're on Whole30 or being Whole30 right. compliant just drives the needle so powerfully. It's such a loyalty, loyal following. So you also, you also mentioned keto. You think it's a trend, fad, interesting, developing, all the above? I, I think it's a trend. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely do. I, I, I fully believe in it. Um, we're looking at a business right now that is fully keto, um, following that movement, and, and I, uh, I'm i a big believer in it and admirer of it. And so something else that, that a lot of people have been are still talking about, which happened a while ago, is Whole Foods Market and Amazon. Yeah. And... 
you know, good thing, bad thing, yet to be determined. What are your thoughts on what that looks like for consumers? And then what, what that's, what is that going to look like for the entrepreneurs who are in the space right now? It's so interesting and, and obviously things are going to play out in ways that we can't totally know, but, but I think for entrepreneurs it's a good thing. Um, I, I, while Whole, Whole Foods has been the pioneer for early stage brands, they've been incredibly receptive to bring on brands and, and help innovate them and drive trial and traction and, and lay, prepare them for the next step. It's changed the conversation quite a bit, um, but as a result, you'll, you're seeing other larger retailers start to support those early stage innovators where Whole Foods is leaving. So for the entirety of the ecosystem, I think what's happening is clearly um, with Amazon's approach into it, uh, it's forcing us all to think about omni-channel in a different way. I think it's forcing or I should say giving brands like Kroger an opportunity to to innovate themselves and pivot towards the innovator and mm-hmm. driving early stage brands um, to a consumer uh, a whole foods shopper I mean I'm, I've noticed a quality change that um, you know is to the negative but really th- what specifically like produce I or? think produce yeah. uh, meats just just focus um, Certain products, uh, you know, smaller brands are just not, it's not as easy to get in there. It's more centralized. It's, it's just more, uh, bureaucratic. Um, but I, but I think what that's done to the entirety of the retail network is, is change the conversation more to support innovation. So I think in the end, it's, it's good for the consumer. And then how do you affect, how do you think it affects Entrepreneurs, with regards to how they how they look at e-commerce and their strategy, I think it's it's an absolute requirement. I mean, we're seeing it from just a valuation standpoint that brands or businesses that are digitally native are receiving outsized valuations. Uh, certainly, there's all kinds of business reasons that that support a DTC digitally native brand are superior in terms of cash flow, in terms of understanding data, customer relations. Um, But I think in the end, uh, all brands are going to need to have both. So what brands, and you can't name a brand you're involved in, but what brands do you admire? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to give a softball here. I, (laughs) I, 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 Kind bar to me, sure. um, because I've, I've known Daniel, um, for a long time and, and Daniel was an early, very early investor in Crave. And so I got an opportunity to, to know him and, and see how he ran his business. And, and while it's a very big business today, um, I've watched it grow up and, his commitment and discipline to to remain focused on proper ways of growing and there's so many shortcuts out there that are so tempting um, for brands as we grow um, but he has defied uh, so many odds and 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 I think has remained so true to the kind brand and and being kind people and doing kind things. Um, I think it's a brand that when we look 10 years from now could be one of the most powerful sure. consumer brands in the marketplace. Great mission. Absolutely. Started out of a, an idea of how do we uh, make peace in the Middle East, if you will. 
Right. And, uh, really important in this day and age, this idea of, of kindness is sort of paramount in the world we live in, which also brings me to accessibility and sustainability. If we, if we look about, look at the world we live in and specifically with wellness and food, two, two big issues. You yeah. know, some people will still say like, oh, like, you know, the stuff's really expensive, whole paycheck, I can't afford it. So accessibility. And then if we talk about sustainability, what's happening in climate change, where you live, Sonoma, devastation. Um, so how, how do you think about those two things, accessibility and sustainability? So coming from Sonoma, sustainability is incredibly important. I mean, virtually, you know, from the pesticides that we use and growing grapes to water usage, I mean, it's pretty evident that we we had a major drought uh, in California up before last winter. So sustainability uh, is an incredibly important topic to where I come from because we're an agricultural town. Um I I believe the conversation is stretching to um, you know Main Street consumer where they're making purchasing decisions based more about brands that practice sustainability and are transparent about what they do and what it means to them. Clearly, as I mentioned a minute ago, Guayaki in my mind is is a real thought leader on on how to actually drive change in a positive way for our planet. Um, and they're not doing it as a marketing gimmick. It's absolutely real. So sustainability is a very real uh, fact that we all need to, to think about and, and be concerned about and, and drive every organization towards that. Um, but we also have to be real about it. It can't just be a marketing gimmick. Sure. Um, accessibility is is – you know, it's an interesting conundrum for us all. I mean, it's uh, how do we think about middle of the country and, and areas that that freshness and it's not as – it's very expensive for an innovative brand that's driving freshness into certain markets of the country with shelf life issues and transportation issues. So how can we create an environment where our fresh products – I deal with products that have limited shelf life that require refrigeration and – it's very easy to service New York and California, but how do I think about the middle of the country and, and making sure that as an overall consumer base, we're providing these great, healthy, forward-thinking products to them in a, in a way that's affordable? So where do you think food will be, natural food, natural CPGB, in the next year, three years? From a market share standpoint, it's just going to continue to grow and grow. I think the conversation is is exploding in the boardrooms of every major big food company in the country, in the world for that matter. Um, I think the the fragmentation of, of food will continue in terms of the consolidation efforts of, of big food will continue. Uh, but for every company that, that big food buys, there are 10 startups that, that enter the space. So it worries me on, on are we going to see big food just get bigger and, and small food stay smaller and then what happens in between? Right. Um, but I do think that this conversation and the trends and the amount of capital that's entering this, this business will, will continue. So you mentioned big food. Do you think, I'm curious, does big food get it and who gets it and what are they going to do? Great question. I I think that there is a natural uh, pull and push between public companies and Wall Street and, and 
developing returns that are very important to leadership of publicly traded big food companies. Right. Otherwise, they get fired. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 very challenging for senior leadership. I, I, I do believe that big food companies get it. They see it. They have better data than we do. I mean, they – you know, Hershey is a phenomenally uh, intelligent brand about data. They know they're a, they're a category captain. They're helping major retailers across the country set their shelves, driven by purchasing behavior. Um, and I do believe that they see what's happening. They're tracking the activity and velocities of categories that they're not in. Um, I think it's challenging for them because they're so big. And executives aren't the guts of the business. So middle management struggles because they're put on performance KPIs that affect share price. And so sometimes innovation takes time, you know, and time is not quarterly results on, on, on Wall Street. So as an entrepreneur, I can be patient. If I have sufficiently capitalized my business, um, I don't need to go out and buy revenue. I can be patient and let customers discover my brand and drive trial and develop a relationship with it. A trend or a fad, if it is, sometimes takes time to turn into a true trend. So would you say that most big food, they're probably not going to innovate from within? They'll innovate they're by acquisitions trying. and M&A? And- I think they're very smartly trying to figure out um, how they can capture the R&D that they do have because I've met with many of the best food businesses in the country and all of them have a pipeline of great ideas and actually they've they've innovated them and produced them in their in their labs they just don't know how to launch them and right. because because a new brand doesn't move the needle on a 10 billion dollar company how do they create incentive within the organization to be patient and let a brand come to life? You don't launch a brand in Walmart. Right. Well, is that why the acquisitions are getting bigger and bigger? So, like, I remember 10 years ago, Bare Naked was, like, a huge acquisition. It was $50 million, And then I look at uh, RX Bar in the last year. It was $600, you know, just $600 million insane. So is, is this is – is it a function of the appetite for natural is bigger – and brands are getting bigger faster, or is it a function of bigger companies or big CPGs waiting, or is it all of the above? I'm curious, like, or is it just what's I definitely more think capital everything? All of the above, right. and, and certain factors, and and then, but each issue has its its idiosyncrasies. So you know, today's ten million dollar brand could be. You know, tomorrow's $500 million brand. Things are moving so quickly that strategics understand that uh, they're willing to reach downstream and acquire or invest into brands that are earlier stage because they're growing so fast. RX Bar is a f- – I mean, it grew f- way faster than Crave. This brand in four years uh, went from zero to, what, $130 million and with Kellogg will probably double again right. very quickly. Uh, Daniel has, you know, remained a private company and in 10 years has just grown to be an enormous business. Um, that being said, I think big food, when they think about M&A, buying a small $50 million business uh, takes a lot of brain time for <laughs> their M&A and legal teams and it doesn't move the needle. Right. And so they're in a, in a conundrum on, on – 
how do they move the needle, which they sure. need to, because Campbell's buying Snyder's is an example of that's a big deal. So it was like five billion or something. That's a really right? big deal. Yeah. But it, so on a revenue standpoint, it moves the needle. Can they can they properly integrate and take advantage of the synergies and the shared services provided by two totally different businesses? Now, will remain to be seen right. on that. So what what keeps you up at night and what has you excited in the morning? Well. Fortunately for me right now, I, I, I jump out of bed every day because I, I absolutely love what I do. Um, I love the, the challenge of, of building businesses and working with people. I love my, my coworkers like family. Um, and so to me, I, there's no place I'd rather be. I, I, you know, sometimes Monday morning comes around and I'm, I'm waiting all weekend. Is it Monday yet? Is it Monday yet? <laughs> Why aren't people returning my emails on Sunday night? <laughs> and, and unfortunately, the flip side of that is what keeps me up at night because I suck at work-life balance. Uh, I have a 10-year-old daughter, and, you know, she's growing up in front of my eyes, and there's going to be a day where dad's not cool anymore. And, I, you know, I'm her soccer coach, and I go to every basketball game and tennis and so forth. So balancing all that together is is hard. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to prioritize uh, family and work, and sure. I've grown up again back to wine in, in an environment where the two have always been merged. Sure. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice in your twenties, what would that be? Don't worry so much. <laughs> I mean, I I I talk to young entrepreneurs where worrying is is hard on the body. Uh, stress is obviously hard on the body, but. Sometimes uh, patience uh, and, and trust and, and don't fear failure so much. Um, I, I was scared to shit about failing. And so, um, you know, I know I'm on the other side of that bridge now, so it's easier said than done. But, but my younger 20s, it was so important to me to make it that I, I kind of was my own worst enemy and sort of just getting out of the way and enjoy the journey. The destination, you get there and you realize there's a whole new journey in front of you. You know, I, I know that, that you've had Meredith Kessler on, on the show and as, as a runner myself, when you've crossed the finish line of a marathon, it's almost depressing because the fun of it is the journey. Once you're done, then it's like, well, what's next? Amen to that. John, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys.